Greetings again, everyone. I want to share with you today two letters. Both of these letters, I'm sure, were written with never any intent that they be made public. And I'm certain that the writers of each letter would have been astounded to have known that the letters would actually have been heard and or read by literally thousands of people. Surely the very sweet little lady that wrote the letter I'm about to read to you, who came to Tyler a very few weeks ago to be baptized, would never have guessed in her wildest imaginings when she sat down to write to me that I would have stood here and read her letter out of the pulpit and into the tape program where perhaps several thousand people eventually will have heard it. Dear Sir, she wrote this just the very first of May in 1986. In the late 60s, I was troubled because I could not understand the Bible, and the little knowledge that I had conflicted so completely with the teaching of my church that all was total confusion. I've always been a nervous person, and you can imagine the emotional strain of stumbling in the dark week after week trying to find a Christ who seemed to elude me. I had been baptized as a teenager, drifted away, sinned grievously, and came back only to grope for years, never finding, never satisfying the inner longing to understand his word and to please him. I mentioned my feelings to a friend, and she told me to listen to a Mr. Garner Ted Armstrong on our local radio station at 12 noon daily. I had everything to gain, for all was already lost, so I listened. Within a few weeks, I started the Bible study course, and studied every lesson diligently along with all other literature. I also incorporated into my study, as you advised, historical documentation from the library, and I might interject that that is very unusual, even though I would continually tell people to go to their encyclopedias on questions like Christmas or what have you. Here's one person who did so, and I think only one out of thousands will really do that. My aunt and a lady friend were my companions in this extensive Bible study, after months and months of study and soul-searching, we called out on ministers from the Worldwide Church to visit, talk, and pray with us. We wanted to be members of God's Church and to be baptized with water and with the Spirit. You may notice that I omitted repentance. We had long since repented and were repenting every day. That is to say, we were trying to walk at all times in an attitude of repentance. I might say here that I, being the most mischievous of our little trio, had to repent not of actions but of evil thoughts far more often than the other two kind and gracious ladies with whom I studied. I remember both of those men, didn't know them really well, but knew them and knew of them and met them many times. From these men of God I hoped for and expected to receive help and instruction in redeeming myself with the eternal. Though I had been living a morally clean life for many years, the sins of my youth still haunted me. Even in repentance I couldn't forget, as God does. I realized through your program and the study that my eternity was at stake. Believe me, sir, I needed help and guidance from God's ministers. My companions in study needed them too, and we, having a brief glimpse of the wonderful kingdom soon to come, rejoiced when we were notified that God's ministers were going to visit us. I was in for the shock of my life. I was interrogated, grilled, questioned, berated, and criticized until I didn't know which way to turn. I confessed every sin I'd ever done and ended up having to write it all to headquarters, including a detailed description of the reasons why my husband and I married after we had been divorced. I explained all to headquarters from a hospital bed and finally got clearance from them that our marriage was valid. Still wasn't satisfied. My hair was too short, so I let it grow. I wore pants, lady slacks. 
I had to quit makeup, and so I did. I studied prophecy too much and didn't study the New Testament enough. By then, I didn't know what to do and was so nervous when I suppose he thought I needed to be placed in the nearest institution for the mentally incompetent as soon as possible. His last visit to me, he asked that my aunt, her friend, and myself meet with him together. We talked, and he postponed baptizing my aunt and our friend. Then, pointing a finger at me, he said, And you, Mrs. Kilpatrick, I don't think you will make it into God's kingdom. He was a minister of God's church. I didn't judge him. I don't now. I went home crushed, laid down the work, and didn't pick it up again at all, and sinned again. Then I saw you on WGN, met one of your members here, and again hope is revived in me. I am studying again. I've repented anew before the Eternal, and though I never stopped believing, I've asked Christ's forgiveness for wounding him again. My aunt, of whom I wrote earlier in the letter, called me date and requested baptism. He told her the church was widow-poor already. She threatened to write headquarters as to her status as a widow. He baptized her quickly. Our friend, whose heart's desire was to first obey God and be accepted of our Lord, then be baptized into God's church, was killed in a car-train accident without ever having received baptism. That leaves me. Will you let me be a part of your little flock? For I know that he has set before you an open door, and no man shall shut it. Hopefully, and with prayer, Clara C. Kirkpatrick, or Kilpatrick. Mrs. Kilpatrick, may I address you on this tape program and say, I have no say-so over whether or not you are admitted as a member of the little flock of which I also am a member. But Jesus Christ of Nazareth does accept you with open arms, and you are a member of his little flock. The second letter I want to read to you is a letter that was written in private from one minister to another minister. And I suppose if the author of this letter had ever imagined for a moment that his letter would be read in public, he would have been astounded. And I imagine if he could come back in the resurrection and realize that his private letter to a young evangelist had become a part of the Bible, the Word of God, he would have been even doubly astounded. For he wrote a private letter to encourage a young minister because of the apostasy and the problems he saw emerging in the New Testament church. First, by way of background, as I turn to 1 Timothy, an introductory note by Bullinger in the Companion Bible says this, To Timothy were given the earliest instructions for orderly arrangement in the church, these instructions being of the simplest nature, and as Dean Alford well observes with regard to the pastoral epistles as a whole, the directions given are, quote, altogether of an ethical, not of an hierarchical kind, end quote. These directions afford no warrant whatsoever for the widespread organizations of the churches, in quotes, as carried on today. The introductory material, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope, unto Timothy, my own son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. As I besought you to abide still at Ephesus when I went to Macedonia, that you might charge some that they teach no other doctrine, 
neither giving heed to fables and endless genealogies which minister questions rather than godly edifying which is in faith. So do. Now, he gets to the whole point to try to give Timothy a focus as to what this Christian life is all about. He says in verse 5, Now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned from which some, having swerved, have turned aside into vain jangling. Now the end of the commandment, the end of the law, the end of the example of Christ, the end of the New Testament commandments of Christ, the end of the doctrine of God is agape, A-G-A-P-E, agape. The Greek word agape means love, but it means spontaneous love, devoid of rights. Look it up and see. It is not a love which is prescribed by a document, a love which is required by commitment or by a vow or an oath, by the right of a child to expect love, succor, nurture from a parent, or a parent or a husband or a wife based upon their oath at the time of marriage to have the right to ask that the other person love, protect, provide, support them. This is a word which seems to mean that if you have agape inside of you, the love that comes with God's Holy Spirit, that you literally spontaneously radiate that love, that it simply emanates out from you. It is a flowing love like a living force that is just there. You don't direct it and say, now, I wonder if I like this person or if I love that person. And it is never something that gradually grows as a result of a commitment, an obligation, or a right. It is just there. It is agape, the love that comes with God's Holy Spirit. The end of the commandment is that agape love out of a pure heart. Now that's a character that is absolutely devoid of avarice, of cunning, of greed, of politics, of party spirit, of the respect of persons, of a desire to achieve a certain status in life, of a, an awareness of even status which, of course, all society is attuned to status. Now, by way of illustrating that point, I am dumbfounded that even where I live, it is like a microcosm of my high school or my grade school. All of you learned when you came through school that there were cliques, that in every part of your educational experience, from the first grade on to the end of the graduation of the 12th grade, or if you went on in college, that there are the in-groups and the out-groups, the athletes and the cheerleaders. There are the ones that are behind the barn. There are the dirty little scruffy kids on the wrong side of the tracks. There are the, the really beautiful people, and there are the ugly people who were behind the door when the, the looks were passed out. And there are the very popular ones, for some reason, whose parents are wealthy and maybe own the local bank, or maybe the skin is stretched over their face a little differently than some of the ones who weren't quite so fortunate. And you find out what is your niche in this particular part of the strata in which you live and move. And you just belong there. And you are forced to live there, and that's where you stay. And even though if you're in a middle niche, you would like to be with the beautiful people, and you would like to be out there in the football team, and you would like to be the three-year letterman with all the little medals and so on, or you would like to be the homecoming queen, you're not. You're someone that was just a faceless blob in the whole group of them in the high school annual, and it's kind of hard to find your picture. Some of the pictures seem to leap out at you from the page, but yours, you've got to hunt for it. Where was my picture when I went to high school? 
I'm amazed. I'm dumbfounded. I live in a retirement community, and it's the same thing. People in their 60s, and there are certain people who tend to gravitate toward each other, and in the area, the clubhouse, and all around on the golf course, there's a kind of an in-group, and there's a middle group, and there's a kind of an out-group. And it seems to be the same thing in churches. People can actually, in churches, be a kind of a nameless, faceless person who just comes and goes and doesn't make waves and is not noticed. Or they can be the beautiful people, the popular people that are kind of up front and always involved in something. And you can have little cliques. I've been convinced time and again, as I said, that if there were three people in a rowboat lost in the South Pacific, there'd be a real squabble over who got to sit in the front, who got to sit in the back, who had to sit in the middle. And if there were only two people, there would be a fight about who got to sit in the front. Because as they say, lead follower, get out of the way. And that's the way we people are. But the end of the commandment, the objective of the commandment, not the absolute abrogation of the commandment, but the result of obeying the commandment, the object is agape, out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith, unpretentious faith, unfeigned faith, not faith that is put on to put on your church-going faith, but one that is deeply embedded inside of you, from which some having swerved have turned aside unto vain jangling, semicolon, desiring to be teachers of the law. I have never understood that desire. I used to write letters to my fiancée, whose name was Shirley Hammer, many, many years ago, saying, I think they are trying to get me into this church. And I think my father has designs on trying to get me into the ministry. And I'm telling you, if they try it, I am going to black someone's eye. And I was very hostile against the idea. But finally, after I was baptized and I began to study, I never remotely thought of the ministry. The idea of being in a ministry was, was just not anything that entered my mind. It was not something I lusted after or coveted or desired at all. I'll never forget that when my father told me I was to be ordained the following day, I ran straight to Mr. Rod Meredith, who is still in the Worldwide Church. He was one of my student teachers. He was only a grade or so above me, but we taught each other in those days. The minute you graduated, you turned around and taught. And I said, I'm not qualified. I said, I'm not ready. I said, I do not want to be in the ministry. I can't be in the ministry. My father is doing it because he's playing favorites. I'm his son, and he's going to ordain Gerald and Norman, Gerald Waterhouse and Norman Smith tomorrow, and, and I'm not qualified. They are, but I'm not. And I argued about it. I want you to go with me and Herman Hay and the others to my father and tell him, no, you can't ordain me. So we did. We went to my dad, and my father told me, why, Ted, your objections are the very reason why you've got to be ordained. And then he told me about how you can't choose the ministry for yourself. And if I thought you were trying to get into the ministry, I wouldn't ordain you. And then he began telling me of the gift of speech that God had given me, and so on and so on. And so they battered down my objections, but, objections, but I've always clung to that. I've got to share that with you. That's always been important to me, two very important things to me. Number one, that I did not come to the truth of God by simply coming along and sort of following in my daddy's footsteps, saying, my dad's got a good thing going here. I think I'll just jump in and get aboard and follow along. Because, you see, we were a poverty-stricken group. When I came to Ambassador College, there were 26 students. And there was a little radio program that was going practically nowhere. And people went six months without a paycheck. And the mail would stack up in the corner, and we students would literally fast and pray. We would go, we'd cancel the meals in the dormitory 
for a day and more in a row sometimes and pray to get a hundred dollars out of Vern Matson to go down and put it in the postal meter to send the envelopes out to contain the literature in response to the radio program. There was no idea in my mind that we would accumulate the kind of stuff that Ralph is talking about that eventually we accumulated until the front end of our home burned off, and I've been through that experience twice. Once, losing everything I possessed through a fire, and then, while well, I didn't lose everything I possessed, I was able to bring some of my stuff with me. And I've still got some of it out here at Emerald Bay after I was uh, kicked out of the house, as he mentioned. But it's been very important to me to always be able to look back, no matter what people in the general public might think, if they see my father on television, and then, of course, I come along and began to follow along, as many people would say, in his footsteps in about 1957-58, and began to do the radio program. It's been important to me to realize that I did not come to it very easily, but that I actually fought it, resisted it, and it was much more difficult for me to come to see it than it was for a lot of people out there on the radio waves. If someone listens from way off there somewhere, it's a lot easier to kind of respect someone and to build in your mind a picture of someone you don't know. I get humbled every now and then. I was up in Milwaukee. I meet people. Somebody comes up, great big guy, about, you know, 240. Boy, you're a lot shorter than I thought you were. I, I'm always told this every time I meet people for the first time. My dad was about five, six and a quarter. My mother was about five, not quite five, one. My brother, about my same height, maybe a quarter of an inch taller, but a little thinner, and so he looked taller. But I'm one of the tallest people on both sides of my family, and I simply can't help it. But, you know, you see people on television... Or you listen to them on radio and you get this idea in your mind of what they look like. So people thought I was 6'4". And they look at me and I'm older and I shrunk. And I'm just, I'm not anywhere near what they thought I would be. So it's easy when you hear people from way out there to begin to believe in what they say perhaps because you don't have the natural barriers that any young teenager would put up against his own dad. The tendency to think you know more than your dad when you're 12, 13, 14, 16, and the tendency to rebel and to run off and do your own thing. And I went through all those feelings. So I've never understood this, desiring to be teachers of the law, but I've come to see a great deal of it. Now, we recently concluded a ministerial conference. We had a number of leading lay members here who were invited by their local pastors as leading people in the church. And I saw a new thing that I have rarely experienced in a ministerial conference in the past and all the many dozens that I've attended over the many, many years. Not many dozens, but a couple dozen or better. And that was that here were men who would read through a paper that they had submitted that had been carefully gone over by a committee and selected, and then people out here on the floor would stand up and just take all kinds of pot shots at it, shoot it down, argue with it, say, well, I'm not sure. One man would stand up and would promote this idea or the other, and there was a lot of pretty lively give and take, especially when the subject about whether or not a Christian could ever serve in a military service in any capacity whatsoever, even in a non-combatant role. You ought to have seen how excited people got about that. But after the exercise was all over, I went away thinking to myself, this was a real maturation process. It could never have happened in the parent organization. There could never have been the submission of such papers in a general session with people standing and actually just having a lot of give and take and taking shots, as it were, at the person who submitted the paper and him gracefully standing there and listening, or the person submitting the paper taking shots of, quote, Tyler, end quote, and us sitting there and quietly listening and perhaps agreeing with them from time to time. But, you know, I look at the problems that emerge from time to time in local church organizations, and then I read a letter like this one from this lady 
who finally came over here and was baptized only a few weeks ago right out here back at the office. And I am just thankful to God for the distance we have come and for the gradual growth and development that I am seeing between and among the ministry and the laity. Now, the problems are not all behind us yet, and they probably never will be, unless or until we come to the place that we have that agape, or charity, out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith completely unfeigned. There will never be a local congregation without some problems, and there will never be a perfect minister. But certainly there is a maturity that is beginning to be experienced, and I'm sure we're going to grow in that as the years go along. Skipping ahead then to the third chapter to get right down to some of the toughest scriptures I've ever read, most of us who are ordained ministers, if we go back and look at this again, we have to shake our heads and wonder how in the world did we ever become a credentialed minister in the first place? Because look what it says. This is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, and that is the correct word, by the way, I know we in the church generally avoid that because it sounds like it is a title, you know, the honorable bishop of the church over in England or something, and people think about a bishop being someone who wears a dress with uh, purple or scarlet or something and a white collar turned the wrong way. But actually it is a Greek, uh, almost a transliteration of the English that has to do with the presbytery, from which one church is taken, the Presbyterian Church, or the bishopric church, the church of all the bishops, or the overseers, and it really means in Greek, an overseer, merely one who is in charge, the sergeant-at-arms of the church in this sense, but in a spiritual capacity. He desires a good work, so it is not wrong to desire it, but that desire has got to be from agape, which is the Holy Spirit inside the person bereft of commitment or of right, who just naturally loves people. Now, Mr. Dart and I were talking. He mentioned because he had known Mr. Far better than I had known him. He said, you couldn't find a sweeter man, I mean, to use that term of a man, a kinder, nicer, more gentle man. These men, many of them, were determined to be among the local brethren in local church congregations all over the United States, qualified in every sense to be ordained as a local elder, because they seem to have that desire to serve, to help, to share, and to actually just help the brethren. They didn't desire office. They, in many cases, were working for years behind the scene with no recognition whatsoever and had no office. Eventually, some of them may have become deacons, but only after they'd served in the capacity of a deacon, helping in the church in every way they could for perhaps years, and eventually the minister turned around and said, well, so-and-so there is such a help, he's doing so much here for the church, and I'm able to give him responsibility, he's helping with the club, he's taking care of the local bank account, he helped with the paper drive the other day, he helps with the shares, he unlocks the building, he's the last to leave, uh, he's helping the widows, he's helping, uh, giving people rides to the church, whatever, he ought to be a deacon. And that's the way oftentimes deacons are discovered in the church. They have been a deacon before they were ever recognized. They're not simply picked out by lottery and then said, now you are a deacon and you will begin going to work and doing what deacons do. And the same thing was true of Mr. Many like him, who became local elders, and eventually because of a kind of a hierarchical idea of the structure of the church, a so-called preaching elder because they were invited to give sermonettes. How did it happen? At what juncture? What series of events, what preaching from an headquarters or hierarchical structure takes these men 
and make them act toward a group of thirsting, questing, sincere, Bible-studying study, ladies to sit there and to point your finger at someone's face and say, I don't think you're ever going to make it into God's kingdom. That would be like a doctor coming to you on a hospital bed and you're lying there needing to have a lung removed because of lung cancer. And you're about to go into the operating room and he's saying, I don't think you're going to survive the operation. I mean, really, that's what it's like. Because here is a patient. Here's someone who's hurt, who's afflicted and wounded, and who needs to be given some loving, some TLC, some tender loving care, some loving care, some encouragement. What is it? What, what is it that makes people believe that the ministry is a position of authoritarian exercise of power rather than a gentle leading, a helping, like the proverbial shepherd with a little lamb in his arm, like the shepherd seeking for the lost one, leaving the ninety and nine and seeking for the one, like the gentle Jesus Christ who said, Come unto me, ye that are weary and heavy laden, for I will give you rest. What is it about standing up in front of people in a pulpit that, becomes, that, that makes people become arbitrary? Would you, for example, if you want to take your wife to dinner, go uh, to a place, you know, over here somewhere, get a reservation, uh, get it all set up, and say, I'm taking to dinner tonight, and we're going to go to so-and-so at exactly 6.30, and you will wear your best dress. I mean, is that the way that a husband really ought to take a wife to dinner? Or shouldn't he, just almost like you're still dating, ask her? And maybe once in a while he ought to suggest, sure, it's a very nice restaurant, honey, I'd like to take you to so-and-so. But you still ought to ask. Or else get her opinion about where she would like to go. How arbitrary should we be then in dealing with church members if we are members of the ministry? How much authority do we really have? A bishop, it says here, must be blameless. That would be tough. For any of us, at any one given moment in time, it means really to be pure. You can look in the margin and see what it says with regard to the word blameless, because it means actually bereft of sin. And you can look it up. It's the only time that that Greek word, which is anapileptos, is used in the entire New Testament. The husband of one wife. He must not be a polygamist or a bigamist. Vigilant. Now, vigilant, I suppose you could apply that to being aware of circumstances, aware of his surroundings and environment, and certainly watchful in the sense that Christ said in Luke 21:36 to watch, that we are to be aware of world conditions. Vigilant, too, with regard to seeing emerging problems among people, a certain profile of disturbance in the fabric of the local congregation. Sober, meaning that he is not hilarious, he is not necessarily... Uh, continually drinking or telling every kind of story at the party. He's not the life of the party. He's a sober man of good behavior given to hospitality. A person whose home is always open. He's always got the welcome mat out. Apt to teach. A bishop doesn't have to preach. There's a difference between being able or apt, which is an aptitude, meaning being a teacher. There are some people that are very natural teachers who are good lecturers and good teachers, who have scratchy, whispery voices, and who are not good preachers at all, that have no drama, that have no teaching, or I should say speaking ability per se, but are good teachers. I've known many of them in colleges and universities. Not given to wine, meaning he's not a serious drinker, doesn't have a drinking problem. He's got it completely under control. You don't see him having one too many and making a fool of himself. No striker. He's not a person of 
very uh, sulfuric temperament who might just haul off and uh, either thrash someone verbally or uh, hit him up alongside the head. He's not going to brawl, neither on the job, in his local community, nor in the church. Not greedy of filthy lucre, meaning that he is not covetous of more and more money. And as the sermonette said, he's not covetous of things, of stuff, of getting ahead materially, but patient. Not a brawler, doesn't enjoy a good brouhaha, doesn't enjoy a good argument of some kind, a good set-to with a lot of people. He would probably prefer to quietly fold up his tent and walk away and think and pray about that and come back and talk when people are in better spirits. Not covetous, either of people, strata, possessions, or things. One rules well his own house. The word ruleth, by the way, if you look that up, is a Greek word which is prostemi, and it does not mean the kind of arbitrary authoritarian control with which we associate the word rule. It does not mean that at all, because you can look in the book of Ephesians and see what the very uh, analogy of Christ and his love toward the church as the analogy of a husband and his love toward his wife and his family, and that we are to rule in our homes in exactly the same way Christ cares for the church. Having his children in subjection with all gravity doesn't mean in fear with all terror. It means in subjection. They will listen to him, listen to his counsel, his advice. When uh, there's trouble, the first person they're going to leap in, you know, jump into his arms is bad. When you're a young boy and there's a thunderstorm or it's dark or you're scared, you had a bad dream, you run and jump into bed with your parents. You're not scared to death of them. You want to go to that person. And the same comment is true with regard to people in a local congregation. I could ask many of my former brethren, they're still my brethren, but they don't know it, in the worldwide church, and I could ask them. Are they able to write a letter the way this lady wrote? Would this lady, another question, have been able to have written that letter to the headquarters of the WCG about ten years ago? What would have happened? Well, the letter goes right back to the local pastor. And the local pastor calls the woman in and says, Did you write this? And that's exactly what happened. And by the time that happened, a few times, no further letters were ever written. Because, you see, fear is erected by both parties. Oftentimes, in our own experience, we have had people who have been subjected to authoritarianism in the past. A fairly new minister might make a mistake. He might appear to be without meaning to be. He's only trying to do the very best he can and to be a minister of the church. And he might appear to be a little arbitrary. And so local lay members get a chip on their shoulder. And they say, aha, and they erect a barrier. And it's like the old story you've heard so many times of the guy who decided he wanted to mow his lawn, but his lawnmower was broken. So I thought, I'll go next door and ask old Joe Brown for his lawnmower. But he thought, Joe probably won't loan me his lawnmower because he was a little snippy the last time I brought it back a day late. And so he got to thinking of how humiliated he was when Joe looked at him the way he did. And the more he thought about it, he just sat there and he just chewed his lip and he thrashed through this thing for about an hour. Joe probably won't even give me his lawnmower. I walk over there, probably spit in my eye. Well, finally, he just took the bit in the teeth and he stomped over next door and he rang on the doorbell. And Joe came to the door and he whopped him right in the nose. He said, keep your blasted lawnmower. And Joe was lying on the carpet looking up in dumbfounded amazement. What was that all about? Well, that's about the way we are with each other, sometimes even in church. We erect a straw man, and then we sit there and just slice it to bits. 
and we attack it, and we, we challenge it, and we beat it, and we thrash around, we tilt at it like Don Quixote, tilting at windmills, who thinks they're monsters as he with his lance and his favorite horse charges into the windmill. Well, oftentimes people erect barriers, and then they get together. And the last thing they do is go to the minister. But if they were like the child who, when he has a problem, readily leaps into the arms of his father, they instantly, if they felt a little arbitrariness, if they thought, I don't think that is the way he ought to handle the situation, would go to that man like an elder brother, like a father, if you will, but not spiritually a father, but a father in the flesh, and with humility, in an all good faith, simply level with the man and say, could I express a feeling to you, sir? Show him humility, show him respect, but for pity's sake, get it off your chest. But they don't. They go home, and they stew about it, and they call a friend, and they stew about it together, and then they call a third friend, and all three of them stew about it, and pretty soon they got a barricade. They're in the streets of the city. The riot's about to begin. Here come the police. They're behind the overturned wagons, and they've dug up about half of the street in terms of big blocks and cobblestones, and they're going to throw it at the approaching riot busters, the, the police that are coming toward them. And they're, they're breathing fire. There's a confrontation. They've got a standoff situation, and us, them, and here we go. We've got a big problem. And it's nobody's fault, especially. A well-meaning, well-intentioned man tried to make a well-meaning, well-intentioned decision. And people got their feelings hurt and didn't go directly to their brother, but erected a barrier. And then the barrier got bigger and bigger. And finally, the minister ran into a feeling of such hostility that he was astounded. And so his feeling of shock became hurt. And then he just thought, well, they don't even want me here. And I'm talking about real-life situations that have occurred. Now, the Apostle Paul was one of those people who never succeeded in his life of trying to achieve that beautiful ideal of the perfect local congregation with the perfect minister, with everybody sitting in their faces with happy Arabic faces and everyone smiling and everybody happy and the minister never having any problems and the lay members never giving the minister any problems and just the happiest, brightest, glowing growing church you ever saw. It never happened. It never occurred. The Apostle Paul was never given a moment in time where he could look on his work, look at all the people he'd ordained, all the churches he'd raised up, and said, at last, we have nothing but total peace and tranquility. He kept working for it, but if you study Second Timothy, the last letter of his life, there's a kind of a deep sigh of resignation. All have departed. Only Luke is with me. Only one man remained. All the others have gone. The very things of which he here warns Timothy, of genealogies, of false teachings, of teachings that are demonic. In the fourth chapter, the Spirit speaks expressly in the latter times, some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy. It had all happened. He prayed and sobbed and bawled with the Ephesian elders on the sands of the sea as he was to leave and go down to Jerusalem for the days of unleavened bread and said, of your own selves, men shall arise, speaking perverse things to lead disciples away from themselves and the very people who were going to do it in six months or a year, bawled and sobbed and cried with him, oh no, Paul, not me. But it occurred, and it happened right on schedule as Paul said it would. So let's read of these qualifications, and all of us as lay members are reading a couple of letters of whose writers or authors 
It would be shocking, I'm sure it will be, to this lady who wrote, and it would have been to the Apostle Paul if he could be resurrected and come back for us to be reading his personal mail like this. Because he wrote to Timothy. He didn't write a part of the Bible. He'd be astounded that his letter became a part of the Bible. He says, how can a man know to rule his own house? How can he take care of the church of God if he knows not how to rule his own house? Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride. Now, why would a novice be lifted up with pride? Well, a newcomer to the church, a newcomer to the faith, and a young man can become prideful in being given a position of leadership. I've seen it happen too often. Twenty-two-year-old man being given a lease car, a new wife, a parchment that says he's graduated from college, ministerial credentials, and a pulpit to go out and harangue 65-year-old retired farmers about whether or not they ought to have peaches growing out of a, an apricot trunk. I mean, things that you cannot believe that have taken place in the past because of the breaking of that principle. We used to think three and a half years of college, four years of college, could supplant about 30 or 40 years of living, and it can't. It cannot do it. Those men were not equipped. They were not ready. And any 22-year-old man is not ready to become a minister and to be up over a church congregation. Lest being lifted up with pride, he falls into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them that are without. You know, we've discovered something the other day I didn't know. In the aftermath of the ministerial conference, and I think it was Ian's paper, or there was another paper that was delivered, but we had a very great discussion about ministerial qualifications and credentials and even a screening process by which ministers can be ordained. I was astounded to learn that some churches do exactly like your mortgage company if you decide to refinance your home. You've got to sign all kinds of, as you know, certificates which allow somebody to call your bank and find out exactly how much money you've got in your checking account, how much money you've got in savings, how much money you owe on your home. They want to know exactly what is your salary. They want a copy of last year's IRS report. They want to know everything there is to know about you. And in these various credit unions, you know, they, or these uh, central clearing houses where they have all that information and they've just got a computer they can tap directly in down there and find out all there is to know about you, whether you're a good risk, if you're going to leave somebody's home or not. And I found out, and I didn't know this, that churches will run a credit report on a man who is about to be ordained. Now, I didn't know that before, but you know, I look at this, it says that he must have a good report of them that are without. If he's in business, if he's a laborer earning a salary, then he's got to have a good reputation in his community. The word report is testimony. Other people have got a witness that this man is a good man in his own environment. You know, because a person could wear two faces. A person could have a hideous financial record. And well, you've got to be careful because some of that could not necessarily be his fault. But this person could be putting on a beautiful face before the church and could seem to be the finest man you ever saw. And all of a sudden, he might be ordained. And so it says he must have a good report of them that are without, lest he fall into reproach and a snare of the devil. Likewise, must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy of money, holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience, and let these also first be proved. And that's interesting. We have habitually, traditionally done that in the church. Those who have become ordained as deacons and deaconesses have nearly always served that way, sometimes for years, before it was recognized and they were ordained, being found blameless. 
Even so must their wives be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children in their own houses well, repeating the very same qualifications as are necessary for the ministry. For they that have used the office of a deacon well purchased to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. Obviously, deacons do more than just set up and take down chairs, open and unlock doors, pass out songbooks. There's something to do with understanding the Word of God and faith and having boldness in that faith which leads one to wonder whether or not deacons also should be a person who would even be able to teach. These things I write unto you, hoping to come to you shortly, but if I tarry long, that you may know how you ought to behave yourself in the house of God. Fascinating. Paul, writing to the evangelist Timothy, telling him, this is the way you ought to behave yourself among these people. Because this, I repeat, is a private letter. This is not a letter written to the church telling the laity, this is the way you judge your minister. This was a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the young evangelist he looked upon as his own son in the gospel, telling him how to behave himself, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, meaning Christ, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Now, we know that the early New Testament church had to gradually feel its way along. In the sixth chapter of Acts, they ordained the deacons for the first time because they saw the widows were being neglected in the daily ministration. We're indebted to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 12 for telling us what are the offices that were established in the church. And I want to conclude by just taking a quick look at 1 Corinthians, the 12th chapter, and see how he leads into something that is even more important by far than those offices that he specifies are in the church. The offices are set forth, beginning in verse 7 and 8. To one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge, and to another by the same Spirit faith, to another the gifts of healing by the same Spirit, to another another who. He says there are differences of gifts, and he says, I would not have you ignorant, and he is talking to the brethren, verse 12, concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, he says. How many of you have always thought that the gift of the word of knowledge, the gift of the word of wisdom, the gift of faith, so that prayers are answered, the gift of healings, the gift of the working of miracles, are exclusively the province of the ministry? Where did we get that idea? Cannot Almighty God give gifts of His Holy Spirit to individual lay members who, because of their own closeness to God, their prayer, their Bible study, their dedication, that agape love that is inside of them is actually like a conduit where Christ can work in and through them and can actually give those gifts to someone who simply wants to aspire to help the brethren, to help the work, to help the church, to another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of languages, to another the interpretation of languages. But these all, working that one and self-same spirit, divide into every man severally as he will, because as the body is one and has many members, all the bodies that all the members of that one body are many, so also is Christ. Look at the analogy in verse 15. If the foot shall say, because I'm not the hand, am I not of the body? What is he achieving here? What is he striving for in urging these brethren to, to conclude? Well, what is it he wants them to finally understand? He wants them to understand there is no such thing 
as a caste system in the New Testament church. There simply are no beautiful people and no ugly people. There are no in-crowds and out-crowds. There are no elite and the, then the rabble. There are not the elite select core and then the masses or the peasantry, but that there are a group of equals in every respect in the sight of God. But they simply have different gifts and different callings and different responsibilities. But they are the same. My calling is different from yours. Maybe a lot of people in this room could get on television simply by sitting there and repeating words, looking and reading on a teleprompter, and do a creditable job. And I have no doubt but what that could be done by several people in this room, male or female. But it's a calling that God has given me, and it's different, perhaps, from yours. That doesn't mean that you cannot fulfill your calling infinitely better than I could fulfill it if I tried to fulfill your calling, or vice versa. He is urging equality. If the ear shall say, verse 16, because I'm not the eye, am I not therefore the body? If the whole body were an eye, where were the hearing? Verse 17. If the whole were hearing, where were the smelling? But now as God set the members, every one of them of the body, as it has pleased him. Sometimes it doesn't please the members, but it does please God. But the only reason it is displeasing to anyone is either because of someone who was listed, lifted up with pride, who is a novice and is prideful and in a position of power, and or someone who lusts or covets for a position of power and is therefore displeased. But if they were all one member, where were the body? But now are they many members, yet one body? And then he goes on to talk about the less honorable, and upon those we bestow the more abundant honor, and the comely and uncomely parts in verse 23 and 24. Verse 25, that there should be no schism or schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. Whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it. Or one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now, you are the body of Christ and members in particular. And then he talks about the work of the church and the various offices that were set. And they are more functions than they are offices, office in the sense of being a decoration of a person, function being the sense of a calling or a commission. He has set some of the church, first apostles, secondarily prophets, that's the New Testament church, notwithstanding what you might have heard or read. Thirdly, teachers, after that, miracles, then gifts of healings, helps. What's a person who simply helps? It's right here in the same voice, the same breath as apostles and prophets and teachers. Governments, and there are governmental administrations. Somebody might have to run a a summer program for kids. Somebody might want to run a Sabbath school. Somebody has to do something where there's administration involved. Diversities of languages. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Are all the workers of miracles? Does everybody have the gift of healing? Do all speak with languages? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire, the word covet should read, the best gifts, that spiritual gifts, and yet I will show unto you a more excellent way. Now, Going on beyond that, leaving all that behind, he says, I'll show you a better way yet than even having a job of serving in the church. And then comes one of the most beautiful chapters in the Bible, I won't read it all, 1 Corinthians 13, where he says, and that's what he was leading up to, because all that was just leading up to it with a colon in place, now I'm going to show you a more excellent way, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, as an apostle, and have not agape. And there is that word again, the very same word. A love which is not a love that is demanded, 
It is not a contractual love. It is not a love of commitment or of oath or of vow. It is not one which someone else has a right to receive. It is a love which wells out of an individual because it flows from him, it radiates from him, because it is the love that comes only with God's Holy Spirit. So it is a love of the brethren which is a natural, you might say, emotion that is in the heart of someone, and you know it when it's there. Who was mentioned in that letter with which I opened was such a man. It's hard for me to imagine, though I know the lady did not lie, and her experiences were very heartrending and very real and very important to her, and I'm sure absolutely truthful. It's still hard for me to imagine that the same man who seemed to have the agape which led him to be a gentle, good, serving person could somehow, as the years go by, in the office of the ministry, say to anyone at any time, unless he honestly thought he was dealing with a demon or Satan the devil himself, I don't think you're ever going to make it in God's kingdom. When he says so in the face of a Savior who says he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance and an acknowledgment of the truth, and all Israel shall be saved, he says in Romans the 11th chapter. He says, though I have that kind of a, a fabulous gift of speaking, the tongues of men and of angels, and have not agape, I'm become a sounding brass, a clanging, tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries, and oh, do they come to me after my campaigns with their mysteries and conspiracy theories and the ideas about the computer in Belgium and the ideas about the temple and the mysterious meaning of 666 and oh, the mysteries that people understand or think they do. And they just go wild after all kinds of mysteries and ideas. And Paul said, if you have all those and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove a mountain, and have not that agape, I am nothing. So then what is your goal? What really is the goal of every single one of us when God makes it so absolutely clear? Is it office? Is it authority? Is it money? Is it any of these things? Is it really even a fabulous spiritual gift? How I would love to have the gift of healing and to put my fingers in my son's ears and say, hear, and hear the voice of your father for the first time in your life. I would have both of my legs amputated way above the knee for that gift to be given to me. And yet, in spite of that, it says right here that if I can achieve that agape love that just radiates out of me and is like a magnet to attract other people because when I meet them they know that I love them, it's worth more in God's sight than the gift of healing. Yes, I was willing to welcome this lady into the church because it is neither for me to say whether she can be a member of God's congregation or not. She is because Christ made her so. We only recognize what Christ has done. So I've read to you two private letters today, and I think the authors of neither one are going to be unhappy that we were here to share them. <laughs>